0: Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul
2: Gonzalez in Los Angeles. And here in L.A., there are increasingly angry calls from elected officials for L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who runs the largest sheriff's department in the country, to resign. Here's Los Angeles County Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas speaking to KABC News. The reason for calling for him to resign or to step down is to uh, communicate to him in the strongest of terms that we're fed up with the way in which he's conducting business and it is harmful to the people of the County of Los Angeles. Villanueva's critics cite a parade of problems with the sheriff's leadership, like an attempt to rehire a deputy accused of domestic abuse, his threat of lawsuits against critics, gang-like cliques of deputies in the department, and most recently, controversial deputy-involved shootings and the arrest of a local public radio reporter who was covering a protest. Here's Villanueva talking about that last incident to KTLA News.
3: And I know no good reporter is going to get it right up on the shoulder of a deputy trying to arrest somebody else. That's inappropriate. And that's going from journalism to activism.
2: Critics of Sheriff Villanueva say his characterization of the radio reporter's arrest is contradicted by video shot at the scene. As for demands for his resignation, the sheriff, who's independently elected, says he's not going anywhere. It'll soon be easier for nearly six million Californians to take time off from work to do things like care for a new baby or a sick relative. Yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a bill that requires employers with five or more workers to offer up to 12 weeks of time off for family leave. Currently, state law requires only businesses with 50 or more employees to offer that amount of time off. It's hoped the law, which was authored by State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson of Santa Barbara, will make it easier for workers to apply for help under the state's Paid Family Leave program. It provides workers taking time off with up to eight weeks of partial pay between 60 to 70 percent of their weekly salary but a lot of Californians are unaware of the program or feel they can't take advantage of it without fear of losing their jobs. Let's turn to COVID. We frequently report here on how California prisons have become coronavirus hotspots since the pandemic began. Well, later today, state prison officials are meeting with inmate advocates to discuss efforts to contain two COVID-19 outbreaks at prisons in the Central Valley and Sacramento County. KQED's Kate Wolf reports,
3: what started as a handful of coronavirus cases early last month at Folsom State Prison has ballooned to over 500. Further south, Avonall State Prison in Kings County has had 2,200 cases. That's more than any prison in California, including San Quentin. Attorney Steve Fama with the prison law office says the congregate living situations at those facilities are
1: especially dangerous.
3: Many of the buildings are cell blocks, but they don't have solid doors on the cells. It's the old-fashioned cell bars. Air shared. State prison officials say they're working to implement new guidelines for testing, quarantine, and isolation of people exposed to the virus at all institutions. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf.
2: Meanwhile, the immigration detention center in the desert city of Adelanto, northeast of Los Angeles, continues to grapple with a COVID-19 outbreak there. From KVCR in San Bernardino, Benjamin Perper reports 39 individuals have tested positive.
4: After three immigrant detainees at the Atalanto ICE Processing Center started showing possible COVID-19 symptoms, staff tested 80 people for the coronavirus. The 39 that had tested positive as of Thursday afternoon are being quarantined and are receiving care, according to a statement from ICE. Paula Khan is with Freedom for Immigrants, a nonprofit that seeks to end immigration detention. She says the conditions in Adelanto, coupled with recent reports of forced hysterectomies in another detention center in Georgia, signal the beginnings of a genocide against immigrant detainees.
3: There are multiple atrocities happening, mass atrocities happening inside immigrant concentration camps, that being the outbreak of COVID-19. These outbreaks could have been preventable had people been freed when the pandemic happened.
4: In a statement, ICE said it remains committed to ensuring detainees in its custody reside in safe, secure, and humane environments under appropriate conditions of confinement. The ACLU of Southern California has filed a temporary restraining order asking for immediate testing of all detainees at Atalanto. ICE in its statement said more detainees may be tested after additional contact tracing is conducted, but didn't commit to testing all 748 detainees currently housed in Adelanto. Thursday afternoon, District Judge Terry J. Hatter ordered that any releases of detainees be delayed because of fears they might bring COVID outside the facility. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Bernardino.
2: Let's turn to the climate. Our state has had a hot and dry summer, and scientists with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration are forecasting that will continue for most of California in autumn. And that means the wildfire threat continues, as Kevin Stark with KQED Science explains.
4: Fires have already burned more than 3 million acres across the state this year, but the season for Diablo and Santa Ana winds, which can drive big fall fires, is just beginning. During a NOAA climate assessment call with reporters, Brad Pugh, a federal meteorologist, said Northern California faces a worse-than-average fall wildfire outlook for two reasons, expanding dry conditions and above normal temperatures into December.
3: With those two factors in mind, I would certainly uh, elevate the uh, chances for continued uh, elevated wildfire risk.
4: NOAA estimates the total cost of California's August wildfires to be at least a billion dollars.
2: Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize
3: the badge of my office.
1: I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: As fire crews across the state continue to battle record-setting blazes, many people are asking what can be done to make sure future fires aren't as destructive in an era of climate change. Many experts say one big solution is improved planning and not building homes where they're threatened by fire. I talked about these issues with David Shue, a 30-year veteran of Cal Fire who now consults with cities. He says a lot of our present problems relate to where we built in the past
3: certainly after World War II, the later half of the 20th century, uh, lots of development and growth occurred throughout the state of California. And unfortunately, there was not a lot of uh, concern or care put into how those developments were built, where they were built, and addressing uh, potential impacts of wildfires. So today, we find ourselves sort of suffering from those Uh, decisions that have been made in the past and looking at ways that we can try to turn that around.
2: So just very tangibly, when you're driving around California or flying over it and you see homes and neighborhoods and even entire communities and fire-prone areas, do you think to yourself that should not be there?
3: You know, are there some places that you shake your head and say we shouldn't build there? Perhaps. But the fact is that local Elected officials and governments have to come to grips with, what do they tell that landowner uh, if they say, no, this is too dangerous, we're not going to build there, have you just condemned that piece of land and what do you do for the person who owns that land?
2: It sounds like what you're saying is that because serious zoning and land use reforms are so politically touchy, we focus on other things like uh, fire-resistant materials and construction techniques as a solution.
3: I think there, it, it, you're bringing up a lot of good questions that are very, very deep uh, in our society. Let's face it, California and most other places around this country are facing housing shortages, affordable housing shortages. And all kinds of issues that relate directly back to how can we build more to accommodate these needs? And unfortunately, a lot of the, uh, all the cheaper lands, uh, happen to fall within these more fire prone areas simply because they're, uh, they tend to be more remote, uh, out away from urban cores, uh, and things like that. So there are competing priorities that uh, are very very difficult and uh, i'm happened i think i'm happy to not be an elected official to have to wade into that conversation and really discuss you know which direction you go those are very very tough choices however in the meantime i think we can see from what's happening outside our windows all of us right now is that i don't think we have the luxury of a lot of time
2: I got to say that a lot of the subtext of what you're saying seems to be we're living in this new world created by climate change, which has resulted in these huge and growing fires, and our politics and really our societal views haven't caught up yet.
3: You're exactly right. And I would add one uh, additional item to that. Buying more fire engines, hiring more firefighters, buying more aircraft is not going to solve this problem. We still have to have that strong suppression component. But that won't solve the problem that we're facing today. And we'll never be able to have enough fire engines to park in every driveway to save every structure. That's never going to happen. So the only option we have is to be more aggressive proactively and being out in front of this to be more preventative than reactive.
2: All right. Wildfire and planning expert David Shu, thanks so much. Thank you very much. The Bay Area has long been known as the place where people have experimented with psychedelic drugs and championed their use. Here's writer, psychedelic guru, and Berkeley graduate Timothy Leary talking about that in 1968.
0: Well, I want to make it clear that I didn't invent LSD. Uh, God made LSD, the evolutionary process. LSD has been used uh, in its platform for thousands of years.
2: Now Leary's alma mater, UC Berkeley, is launching a new center to study the science of psychedelics. KQED's Laura Clivens talked to one of the center's co-founders, journalist and author Michael Pollan.
1: When Pollan told friends he was co-founding a center to study psychedelics at UC Berkeley, he heard the same response a lot.
4: They always thought Berkeley would be the first place to have a psychedelic study center.
1: (laughs) But Berkeley isn't the first. Although psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin have been outlawed nationwide for roughly 50 years, recent studies have shown the drugs, coupled with therapy, are particularly effective in treating some mental health problems. For example, the nonprofit MAPS, based in Santa Cruz, is currently in late stage human trials on the use of MDMA or ecstasy to treat PTSD. Johns Hopkins is studying psilocybin to treat addiction and severe depression. Berkeley Center will instead focus on how psychedelics affect the brain.
4: The work that isn't getting done in this country to that extent is looking at what psychedelics such as psilocybin have to teach us about the mind about things like creativity, consciousness, cognition, emotion.
1: The center will also train people to be guides or facilitators for psychedelic research and therapies. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens.
3: Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org.
2: And now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's weekly magazine. This week, host Sasha Coca explores how the pandemic is forcing us to have hard conversations about something hardly anyone ever wants to talk about, our wishes around death and dying.
1: Michael Thomas is sitting up in bed at Highland Hospital in Oakland, an oxygen tube in his nose. He's 64, and he has a lung disease that makes it hard to breathe. He's particularly vulnerable to COVID. He's talking to his doctor, Jessica Sitter, over Zoom.
2: I'm not going anywhere. Not yet. I, I would say in another, another 10 years.
1: <laughs> you're, more, you're a more confident person than I am about myself. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, I love your optimism. I, and Thanks. I want to be, be totally frank with you, because I, des- I, I believe that you deserve that. If someone told me, Michael is going to die within the next six months. I would also not be surprised. Zitter is a palliative care physician at Highland. And she says, pandemic or not, all of us need to be having conversations with our loved ones right now about our end-of-life wishes. It's about how people want to live their lives. That informs how people want to die. But it really starts with how they want to live. Death is a part of life. We have sex ed in high school, Zitter says. Why not Death Ed? You
2: can hear more on this week's California Report magazine on many public radio stations or download the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And before we leave you, a question. Do you ever forget a day that's important to someone you love, like a birthday or anniversary? Well, something similar happened to us and the state of California. Earlier
0: this month we neglected to mention that it was the 170th anniversary of California's support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works springing from Cartoon, The News, and Human Connection. ODC dance downtown support for kqed podcasts comes from star one credit union now offering real-time money movement with instant pay make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions online or through star one's mobile app star one credit union in your best interest
3: hey john favreau here there's no shortage of political takes in 2024 but quantity doesn't cut it